Well, we've been stunned over the last several months at the uh, number of tornadoes that have ravaged the south and even more recently this week in Massachusetts. The one that probably stands out the most is in Joplin because uh, it killed so many people. One tornado, 139 people dead. And here's a picture of that tornado. An F4. I went right to the center of Joplin. You'll see a picture of before and after. Before on the left and after on the right. And all the color is gone. The, the structures are gone. It's a high school on the top. Part of the picture is unbelievable to, to look at the blocks upon blocks of uh, devastation. I also see a picture of uh, people grieving. Imagine the grieving they're going through right now, two weeks after this devastating tornado that rocked the city. See a person just sitting in the midst of probably what was their house. There's a picture of Will Norton. He was kind of a, <laughs> a star, I guess you could say, on YouTube. He put a lot of films out and things like that and had a lot of followers. And He was coming home from his high school graduation on Sunday afternoon, and the tornado was approaching, and so they pulled off to the side of the road, and his dad was holding on to him, and, and the tornado hit, and... The vacuum was so strong, it pulled Will up and broke his seatbelt, and his dad was still holding on to him. And finally his dad could hold on no longer, and he went right up to the sunroof. And they found his body a couple of days later in a pond covered by debris. So sad. You know, a young man graduated from high school, looking forward to the rest of his life. Now he's gone. That's the nature of death, isn't it? We never know when it's coming. We just assume we have years and years and years ahead of us, and that might not be the case. But the most important thing is to know where you're going when you die. I received an email from a friend who was asking for prayer for his father, who had lung cancer. He was found out this past week, and praying for a lot of different things, but he mentioned in the email that uh, even if my dad does die, we know where he's going. And that's the comfort and that's the hope that we as Christ followers have, those of us who have accepted God's gift of salvation, that no matter how bad this life might be for us, and for some of us, I know, it's very challenging. But in the end, the big picture is you're going to spend eternity with God. That's the eternal hope that we have that carries us through every day. But there are so many people that don't have that hope. Uh, it's just interesting to think about out of that 139 people in Joplin, how many had that hope? How many had that relationship with God? Then when you think about the people around you, your neighbors and your coworkers and other friends, other acquaintances that you come in contact with on a weekly basis, how many of those people have that eternal hope. How many know that when they die, they're going to heaven, not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did for them and their acceptance of that free gift? Well, that's what we really want to hit upon today, is uh, reaching people for the Lord. 
and focusing on the theme that Jesus Christ has the power over death. He has the power over death. We're in the midst of a series entitled Learning from the Life of Jesus. We're taking selected passages from Matthew and asking the Holy Spirit to teach us through those. And I'd like you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Also to take out your message notes, which also has the biblical passage there. Take notes as the Holy Spirit impresses things upon you. This is a story of two different miracles. Jairus' daughter and the woman uh, who bled for 12 years. And as we, we've said before, whenever you're studying a story or a parable in the Gospels, you want to make sure to look at the parallel passages in the other Gospels as it told somewhere else in the Gospels. And again, we find with these stories, they're also recounted in Luke chapter 5. You want to write that down. You can read that later. Or Mark chapter 5, that is. And Luke chapter 8. And we'll be touching on some of those passages as we get more information about this story that's found in other Gospels. So Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. Let's look at Matthew chapter 9 as we look at Jesus Christ's power over death. While Jesus was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. So we see it's a ruler, and from looking over at Luke, we know that it's a ruler of the synagogue. In fact, the chief ruler of the synagogue has come to Christ. This is the head man in the city who is leading Jewish people in their faith. He's the one who organizes the readings and appointments of people. It might not be a full-time job, but he's very much respected in the city as the religious leader of that city. Now, you got to remember, last week we were talking about the religious leaders and how they were anti-Jesus, which eventually led to his death, right? So here you have the chief religious leader in the city, and he's coming to Jesus. Not only is he coming to Jesus, but he's kneeling before him, and the word there... And the original language is the same word for worship. He is bowing down to Jesus, acknowledging him as God. He wouldn't do that to anybody else. But he bows down, might, might have kissed his cloak, might have kissed his sandal, the ground, I'm not sure. But he was worshiping Jesus. Now you can imagine the people standing around saying, his name was Jairus. We learned that from another passage. Imagine Jairus, okay, the chief leader, the pastor, I guess you could say, uh, bowing down to Jesus. This is just unheard of. They're going, what is going on here? Jesus is much more than we thought he was. If Jairus is doing this, well, the question is, why did Jairus do this? Well, he had a real problem. He said, my daughter has just died. I knew she was 12 years old. 12 years old. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. 
Here you have this 12-year-old, and she had just blossomed as a young lady. At the age of 12 in that culture, a girl became a, a woman. At age 13, a boy became a man. And so you ladies all know, it always takes men longer. <laughs> really, that's true really throughout your life, right? <laughs> You're many steps ahead in maturity. You're just going to have to help us along. <laughs> But 12 years old, just like that guy who graduated, he was entering into manhood and his life was taken away, just like this little girl. And what he says, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. He had faith in Jesus Christ. He was desperate. He didn't care about his reputation, his standing in the community. Nothing of that meant anything to him. He just wanted his daughter to be alive. That's all he cared about. The reason that he worshipped Jesus is because his life had hit a wall. And people tend to turn to Jesus when their life hits a wall. Maybe that was true of your experience. In fact, we're going to have a time later when we're going to have open mic time, and you can share just briefly about uh, when your life hit a wall and how you accepted Christ as your Savior. But when your life hits a wall, when somebody has an addiction and their life hits a wall, many times they turn to Jesus. When your life hits the wall of unemployment and a financial crisis, that's when people turn to Jesus. When people's lives hit the wall of divorce, Many times they'll turn to Jesus. When a person's life hits the wall of disease or some type of physical condition, many times they turn to Jesus. When a person's life hits the wall of emptiness and hopelessness, many times they'll turn to Jesus. And that's the thing, is that adults typically, you know, we've established our pride pretty well. Most people come to Christ before they're the age 18. But the older you grow, the more self-sufficient you become. And many times it takes a wall for the Holy Spirit to get through to you and to ring your bell and say, you need Jesus. And I really want to challenge you uh, today as we head into the summer to do everything you can to build a loving relationship with someone who needs Jesus in your life. Because summer's a great time. Everybody comes out of hibernation, right? I didn't know people lived in that house. That's amazing. And it's different people than last year. <laughs> they moved and we didn't even know it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of surprises during the summer, right? Get to know your neighbors, hopefully. And that's the idea is that we need to take advantage of the summer months because during the summer, people are more open to getting to know you, spending time together, whether it be barbecues or block parties or the kids hanging together, going to the park, uh, your coworkers. People just like to go out during the summer, obviously, to enjoy the beautiful weather. And we need to take advantage of that in terms of getting the good news that Jesus Christ has the power over spiritual death, that he can give people 
new life. So I want you to take out your communication slip at this time. Everybody do that. Tear it off if you haven't done that already. We always encourage you to fill this out. In fact, I was calling some people I hadn't seen in a while and noticed that they hadn't filled out a communication slip and one had major surgery that I didn't know about and another had another issue, so I was able to encourage them in that. So uh, please fill this out on a regular basis. But turn over uh, this uh, communication slip to the information request and you'll see comments there. And I want you to write some things down for me. I want you to write, first of all, your full name. Okay, I know it's on the front side, but right on the back here as well. Your full name, and then write down the first name of the person that God is leading you to love to the Lord this summer. You want to love this person to the Lord this summer. Again, someone in your life that God is impressing upon you that you need to really put some extra effort into. And then underneath that, put the relationship. Relative, neighbor, co-worker, whatever. And we're going to put this in a database and give it out to our prayer team as well as anybody else who would like it. And we're going to pray together. And we would love these people to the Lord this summer. Now again, we don't know what God's timetable is with the people that He has put into our lives. It could be at the end of this summer that this person might be willing to come out to our fall outreach. Or maybe they're not ready for church and they might come out to a hayride. Or maybe they don't want to come out to anything, but you've cultivated a stronger relationship with them. You've gotten to know them. And again, people get so freaked out about evangelism, thinking, oh, I've got to tell them about Jesus. <laughs> I've got to know all the answers. And No, you don't need to know all the answers. You always can get the answers. And again, 90% of Evangelism is just loving people, just caring for them, just having a regular relationship with them, and them seeing the difference in your life. And, and when you have opportunity, certainly you can talk about being part of a church and how that makes a difference in your life. And you can talk about Jesus Christ answering prayers and do a lot of other things. But you don't have to be, you know, hellfire and brimstone, obviously. You just love them. You love them to the Lord. And, and what you find is, is that if you establish this type of relationship, and it might go on for years, when their life hits the wall, like Jairus's did, that's when they're going to be prompted by the Holy Spirit to remember you and your life and your faith in God. And they're going to turn to Jesus because they don't know where else to go. You need to be patient. It's going to take a long time. But God just asks you to be faithful. He'll do the rest of the work. So put that name down, uh, whatever the Lord impresses upon you, and say, this summer I'm really going to ramp up my efforts and ask the Holy Spirit to empower me to really love this person to the Lord. So that's the first part of this passage. What's interesting about this passage is you have a miracle Jairus's daughter, but then you have a miracle within a miracle. And we'll read about this sub-miracle in verse 19. Jesus got up and went with him. So he was heading off to Jairus's house. And so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. So we have a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Some people think this might be a, a fibroid tumor in the womb. 
Uh, we're not sure what it was. Probably wasn't cancer, or she probably would have been dead. There's no treatment for that back then. But she had this discharge. And certainly the physical condition was difficult. But the emotional ramifications because of the social stigma that went with this condition were even worse. Because back in that day, if you had a bloody discharge, you had to go through a ceremonial cleaning. And people couldn't be around you and just different things you had to do. Well, if you had a continual type bleeding, that means you were always unclean. And if you were unclean, you couldn't go to the temple. And if you were unclean, you couldn't go to social functions. And if you were unclean, uh, the people around you were unclean. Most of these people were divorced because their spouse wouldn't put up with it. And it was just a mess. It was like being a leper. Nobody wanted to be around you. So this woman was incredibly hurt because she was isolated by the community. And you think about this. Okay, here's Jesus Christ, and he's in this crowd, and he has an interaction with maybe the most respected individual in this community, the chief of the synagogue. And at the same time, he has an encounter with a woman who's lowest on the ladder, an outcast. Nobody wants to hang around here. And Jesus loves them in the same way. Jesus was known for hanging out with sinners. That's what the religious leadership were always saying. You shouldn't be hanging around with sinners, the prostitutes and the tax collectors who are stealing people's money and all the other lowlifes in their estimation. Isn't that interesting? Many times we don't think about that. Jesus hung out with people that most of the people would not hang out with. That's where he spent most of his time. And when we think about that, we should ask ourselves, who do we spend time with? Who do we spend time with? People that we enjoy, people that are similar to us, people that maybe can give us something, can bring benefits to our lives. And think about people in your life that maybe God has prompted you to engage in a relationship with in order that you might show His love. And you say, oh, I don't want to spend time with that person. Oh, other people think of me if I spend time with that person. I'm not going to enjoy that. But Jesus cares about that person, right? And we should care about that person. Maybe there's somebody in your circle of influence, the world you live in, that the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, you've been avoiding that person. I love that person. And I want that to be the person you reach out to this summer. I love the fact that Jesus Christ was always accessible. Let's move on to Mark chapter 5, verse 25 through 26. Mark chapter 5, verse 25 through 26. And a woman was there, this is again another version of the story, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered great, a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now look at verse 26 again. Can anybody relate to this verse? 
She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Anybody had that experience before, right? Doctor to doctor to doctor, you know, the money keeps going out and you're getting worse instead of better. That is incredibly frustrating. I know many of you have been through that. Now, it's interesting, Luke didn't include that in his account because Luke was a doctor. Trying to protect his profession, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So, again, in Matthew, we read the same thing. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now, she was taking a tremendous risk at this point. Because, number one, women did not touch men in that culture. Secondly, women did not touch rabbis. <laughs> and thirdly, in the original language here, it speaks about kind of like a grabbing. A grabbing. That certainly didn't do that either. So she was taking a risk. But you got to remember that she had hit a wall in her life. She was suffering physically and emotionally and socially and and she was desperate. When people are desperate, again, many times they turn to Jesus. And so she just grabs him. In fact, back in that day, Jesus Christ was most likely wearing a cloak and that was similar to a rabbi's cloak because he was a rabbi and it had probably tassels on it that represented the Word of God. And maybe she grabbed for one of those tassels. And when she touched that tassel, a miracle happened. We read that in verse 29 of Mark 5. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. That must have been really cool, huh? I mean, she had the faith, and as soon as she touched Jesus Christ, there was a power release and a power surge into her body, and she was instantly Heal. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe some of you have an old football injury or some other type of chronic pain in your life, and all of a sudden it's gone. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Amen. Yeah, well, that's what she experienced. Her faith was rewarded. Now, this is really interesting. Again, found in Mark, not in Matthew. And once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he knew it. He managed his power. He knew that the power was gone. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Well, the disciples are going, Hey, you see the people crowding around you? His disciples answered, And yet you ask who touched you? I mean, all kinds of people are touching you. In 32, verse 32, But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Now she's filled with fear because she had done something very wrong and man, nobody cared about her anyway so she really had nothing to lose but now this amazing rabbi that she respected so much she thought that Jesus was going to come down on her. That's unfortunate that so many people think that that God is just out to get them. <laughs> God is God is there to love you. God is there to love you. Look what he says in verse 20, 
2 of Matthew 9, Jesus turned and saw her. Imagine just making eye contact with her. Nobody maybe had made eye contact with her for a long time. He said, take heart, daughter, just like with the paraplegic we studied last week. Take heart. That means there's no reason to be afraid here. No reason to be afraid. And you're my daughter. Again, the tenderness and the love of Jesus Christ. And your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. From that moment she was healed. Now, I really think there were two healings that took place here. I think that when she grabbed on to Jesus, she was healed of her physical problem. But the word here for healed is a redemptive type of healing. So I believe here it's referring to a spiritual healing. That she was forgiven of her sin. That she came into relationship with Jesus because of her faith. Just like the paralytic, right? He had faith. So first of all, he was spiritually healed. Jesus forgave his sin. And then he was physically healed. when Jesus Christ cured him of his paralysis. And now we see the woman physically healed first and then spiritually healed. And as we've talked about before, the spiritual healing is so much more important than the physical healing. Now, if you look at a typical prayer list of what people have written down, probably the majority of prayer requests relate to physical needs, you know, sickness and financial issues and relational issues, things of that nature. That would be beyond uh, physical. But at the same time, you don't see many spiritual requests. Yeah, it's terrible that a person has a particular sickness, but what's even worse if that person isn't a Christian? Because that sickness will only impact this life where the spiritual disease they have, a sin, will impact their entire life. So many times we become so much more concerned about a neighbor or friend or co-worker because they're physically sick than the reality that if they don't turn to Jesus to solve their sin problem, they're going to spend eternity separated from Christ. Now that is a real problem. That's a serious problem. That is a problem that needs to be addressed first. And that's how you and I should view the world as we go to work. As we go to games for our kids, as we go to other places where we talk to unbelievers, and we need to be thinking, these people, they just don't have cancer. They have spiritual cancer. They're all headed toward a terrible place. And I need to be used by God to do whatever I can to love them and to show them the light that God has put within me. So we see Jesus Christ declaring his deity and his love for people through this miracle. Now let's go back and uh, pick up the main miracle. That was the miracle within the miracle. This is the main miracle, verse 23. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd. Now, let me just say one thing. Let's talk about visitation and funerals that we have in our culture. What are the rules when you go to a visitation? Well, the first rule is, is you've got to dress up out of respect for the person who died and their family, and so you get a nice suit on, uh, nice black dress, dark colors, 
colors of warning. And then, uh, when you go in uh, to the funeral home, you've got to be serious. It's a very serious thing that's, that's happened. A person has lost uh, someone. And, and you don't want to be cracking jokes at that time, right? <laughs> you don't want to do that, you know. And then you've got to whisper, right? You always whisper when you're talking at a visitation. Not you know, speaking out, not laughing, that kind of thing. Everybody's whispering. It's a very quiet, quiet place. I mean, if you came in uh, to a visitation and you had shorts and a T-shirt on and says, I'm so sorry to hear about Jim. How's everybody doing? <laughs> oh, you'd get looks at kill. <laughs> Especially if I did that and I was doing the funeral. I mean, you know, that, that has us get out of there. But, but back then, it was a little different. Because every culture, that they do visitations and funerals differently. So back in this culture, it was more like uh, down in New Orleans when they have the band following the casket. <laughs> First of all, you had the flute players. You had to have flute players. Anybody a flautist here? Okay. You could be a professional at uh, visitations. But uh, you had to have a flautist. Uh, two, the minimum of two if you were in abject poverty, two of them. And then on top of that, you had to have a professional mourner. And these were the wailers. These were the shriekers. I mean, ah, oh, they made a ton of noise. I mean, they were just crying out. In fact, they, they do some research and find out maybe other people who had died before the other person and they would say oh we remember Benjamin the grandfather and how he died so many years ago and we remember Esther the beloved aunt and they would just go on and on and on and on and on top of that you got people ripping their clothes right they were mourning so they ripped their clothes and there were different laws that the Jewish leaders had put together so if you uh, were the parents you had to rip the clothes over the heart and if you had another relationship, you ripped them here. It's expensive to go to a funeral. I have to buy new clothes, you know. <laughs> so you got the flutes going. And Jairus was probably pretty 